So, uh, we're tracking dear mom today. Oh, lovely. Yeah, and it's making me super emotional. Um, that would be lovely. I'm on my way now, switching, uh, getting my tablets. Out so I can bring her out and about. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So what time are you starting with that? Like in about 10 minutes. Oh, okay. But yeah, I just wanted to say I really appreciate you. Oh. And I love you. Sweet. Thank you. Thanks. I love you too, you know that. Yep. Sometimes you need to hear more, I guess. Yeah. Likewise. Mm -hmm. at Pika um, is located in the West End Gallery upstairs and so when viewers come to check out the exhibition you'll first see purple sprayed arches that um, exist outside the building that you'll enter through and in the screen space opposite the West End Gallery you will see the only surviving footage of what made um, the Purple Rain protest um, known as the Purple Rain protest in 1989. At large, the exhibition is very much influenced by this protest, where on September 2nd in 1989 in Cape Town, a protester grabs onto a police's water cannon that's filled with purple dye to mark protesters and instead sprays the apartheid headquarter buildings and everybody in this chaotic moment becomes purple. And I really loved this metaphor at a time of so much segregation and binary and separation of people that at this protest and through this purple rain, everybody became one or everybody became purple and how that relates to other philosophies such as Ubuntu within the Southern African context. So this purple signifier um, becomes a big catalyst for the exhibition. So when you walk inside the Western Gallery, you will see that the whole space is filled with purple light um, through a um, light installation called the Purple Shell Govern, which is also the name of the exhibition. Mm -hmm. um, the first space features uh, some of my family archives, but also South African government legislation of how race was determined and how it um, prevented people from freely moving in public space. And when you move past um, the archives, you move into the next section of the gallery, which features more archives of video installation works um, on broadcast monitors and sound works that feature my family's stories of experiencing apartheid at the time in South Africa. Um, this is also interwoven in with a video archive called Pigs Might Fly Too, which is the moment when Nelson Mandela visits Australia and Gary, Dr. Gary Foley is also featured in the news broadcast. Um, but these are some of the things that you'll find in my exhibition, The Purple Shell Cover. Thank you. 
Joy Rich, welcome to Kai Radio. Um, so you are an activist, an educator, curator, multidisciplinary artist, um, um, who has a sound and video installation that's currently running at Pika. So that started on the 3rd of November, it goes until the 31st of December 2023. Uh, you completed your Master of Fine Arts at Monash, and you've had exhibitions in Joburg, in Cape Town, in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, as well as and in Indonesia as well, yeah? Um, yes. Yeah, so, um, and of course, you were recently awarded the Footscray Art Prize uh, in 2023 um, for your video installation, which was called Though Buried, uh, They Echo. Um, I wanted to ask um, what that was about and and I guess maybe give us a background um, on you growing up um, as a South African, uh, being born as a South African in Australia, which makes you essentially Australian, and you know how you, you know how you, how you got to connect to 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 the land of your parents' birth, so to speak. Mm. Well, thank you, Shoshi, and thanks for having me. I guess to start off um, speaking about uh, my experience of being a Southern African diaspora woman, but an Australian citizen growing up on unceded country, um, I have a very different experience to say um, Southern African folk who have grown up on the continent and perhaps left in their adolescence or adult life um i feel like there's a kind of period where um it's quite unique that i'm born in australia yeah. because i feel like most of my peers who are brown or black southern africans or identify in that way they either left when they were like five or eight or ten and then um you know have more of their formative years um in this colony so yeah, it's a it's a bizarre kind of um, experience, I guess, but the only one I know. Um, my father had actually left South Africa in, in around 1968. Um, very angry. He wanted to study architecture. It was for whites only. There were many other kind of. Um, pretty impactful and I think traumatic things happening for him at the time. Mm -hmm. So it felt like leaving was the best thing for him to do. Um, so he would actually enter Borlu, Perth, was his first point of call. Um, literally, yeah, came on the boat with not much belongings um, and started 
looking for work and would eventually be joined by my grandmother. Um, uh, grandfather wasn't in the picture at this time and his only sister, my aunt, was already married. So um, I guess there wasn't much other than cousins and other family um, that he was leaving behind. But yeah, his journey kind of began on the Western coast and would eventually receive a phone call saying, I think there might be work in uh, Melbourne, which I think brought him, yeah, to the East Coast. And um, without going into a, a long story, um, he would spend close to 20 years traveling around, trying to find work, traveling with my grandma. Um, yeah, just trying to make a way. And it wasn't until my mum visited, um, I'm trying to think, within the 80s that the two of them happened to meet. And I'm not sure if your family's like this, but I feel like within various communities, especially within the older generations, um, going to the same church or spending time in the same communities. So two cousins had married two sisters. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, like um, my mom was visiting like her sister who um, was already living over there. And my dad was a part of helping his cousin come over and so yeah it was like quite actually even though my father had left for political reasons my mom was more so um for love so yeah I think it's important to I kind of give this context also just because I think specificity is kind of important when understanding people's different walks and journeys into place but um yeah they would fall in love write love letters my dad would fly over to South Africa and ask her to come over and um be married which was very difficult for my mum being the second youngest of 13 and family such a big part of um her life as well so yeah she would come and then I like to think of myself as a honeymoon baby <laughs> and then I was born so maybe that's TMI but anyway um, <laughs> I yeah I was born in Geelong which is Wuthering country and the east southeast coast um, Geelong at this time I actually liken Geelong to Borloo quite a lot in terms of its working class blue collar history a lot of factory work I imagine without knowing deeply the histories of Borloo, but the mining industries that exist. Um, and in terms of also just like the nightlife and culture as well, I feel like they're quite similar. Yeah. Um, and also growing up in Geelong, it was very Anglo-Australian. It was, yeah, an extremely kind of white context that I grew up in. Mm. And it was very clear to me from a very early age that um, we were different or that I was particularly different. Um, I think also if you are familiar with Southern African history and um, community, you understand the kind of, um, uh, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, Rainbow Nation nickname that it gets. But I yeah. think here in this colony context, I received a lot of like, why are your parents black and you're not? Or why are your brother and sister look like this and you don't? So um, I think that added an extra layer perhaps to the ways in which I navigated space. Um, but, yeah, I think I was one of like five African families at my high school. Um, and then even, yeah, it's just it was it was a very different time. Like now, even when I visited Borlu and even when I visit Geelong, I'm like, oh, awesome. There's like more brothers and sisters yeah. I can see within community. But definitely growing up in Geelong was pretty like, I mean, it's made me the person that I am. And if I didn't have those experiences, um, then I wouldn't have the perspectives that I have. But also I don't think that means that, <laughs> you know, one's experiences of racism and discrimination should be validated. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so that's kind of a bit more about my, well, without going into, I mean, my parents, 
I knew I was South African and we'd have aunties and particular people who would visit um, over the years. So I knew, okay, we're connected to this place called South Africa and I know it's a part of Africa, but when it came to apartheid and history, my parents definitely sheltered me from it. And I think that is also a, a reflective of their own trauma or their own distance in not wanting, like just wanting to land in a new yeah. place yeah. with a young family and try and make things work. So uh -huh. the irony, I guess, of that is growing older, my experiences of racism in this country, wanting to understand where it's coming from and why it's happening mm -hmm. and having that um, interest and curiosity and experience of going back to my own roots and learning more about my history and how it parallels so closely with the histories of nation state Australia. But yeah, um, I don't know if I've answered your question in a way, but I definitely have had a very different experience in the sense that, you know, my mom comes from an Afrikaans kind of northern suburbs cape family yep. my father in the suburbs southern suburbs who would speak more english so in the household um and you know uh patriarchy and his own relationship to country and place he'd be like don't speak afrikaans in the household and yep. my mom would be like oh um you know like yeah my Afrikaans is not very good <laughs> but um yeah like yeah. so I, I wish that I had the experience of having language even if it is a language that is fraught between what some people call the oppressor's language or some people call the combes language um like, but yeah, there's definitely, oh, sorry. Kitchen, kitchen language, like for people who are working in the kitchen and so they have to understand to take instruction and so on. Yeah. Mm, yeah, I definitely like my interest in Afrikaans is like when people say combase, I'm like, well, that's just a signifier of our history of our slave ancestors all trying to form a language to communicate without their master's understanding um i mean that's kind of another discourse yeah. but i feel like there's so many complexities within the southern african like community and geography awesome. but yeah as a diasporic person um i just felt the more i learned the more i felt i could see myself or i could understand myself better and that's what influenced the many trips that i would take to South Africa that would lead to, yeah, having, being blessed to have exhibition opportunities in Johannesburg and Cape Town. But it was through a lot of persistence and going against the grain of my peer kind of, I guess, artists in Melbourne and what they were doing. Um, but yeah, and I mean, the experiences that I think I've had kind of in some ways differ from my brother and sister who yeah I think really depending on the ways in which you navigate publics or public spaces and that was a big kind of driving factor for the exhibition like yeah it's a yeah there's definitely a lot of kind of interesting experiences that I do wonder like, oh, if I'd maybe perhaps had a family where it wasn't as so like, what do you mean you're not adopted or yeah. you're all connected that perhaps my experience would be different. But um, yeah, um, I now live in Nam. I couldn't go back to live in Geelong. I think that would be a bit much. But um, yeah, like you said about... Um, the western suburbs and being in Footscray, I love living in this part of town because similar to, I think, um, what I imagine living in Southern Africa is like at times, there's a melting pot of various communities coming together. Mm. Um, yeah. And obviously, like you said, lots of amazing yeah. food as well. Yeah. But it's a, yeah. It's a super... It is a unique perspective. And in my opinion, it's like it's a perspective that your perspective has, you know, has allowed you to present this exhibition and I'm sure others like in a in a unique way, 
um, and in a way that that I think needs to be heard as well. Um, so I was like, you know, I was grateful to be able to see that. Um, I listened to the conversation that you had, um, and I think it was with maybe your aunties and uncles as well, mm. <laughs> which was which was quite interesting. Um, and a question that Lisa shares and she wanted to ask as well um, would be for you, um, given the context that you've just explained, to explain or to break down rather what colored means mm. for you um and you know because there's a, obviously a lot of confusion around that there's a confusion for mm. people who did not grow up in south africa or who mm. heard the term but you know think you know give it a u.s context and oh but isn't that outdated is that still right um how do you feel about that term do you identify with that term and you know what what does it all mean to you mm. Well, the term is obviously very fraught. Um, when I visited South Africa, I think it was when my first trip as an adult, when I just finished high school and I, um, yeah, was curious in wanting to learn more about my family. Um, well, that would actually follow yet yeah, another trip in my early 20s when I was doing my master's. And I was really interested in these ideas of racial authenticity and what defines someone as being an authentic being of a constructed race or whatnot. Yeah. And so I was exploring this word and thinking about this word colored a lot because it's not something that, it's not language that I used growing up or language that I referred to um, myself. And so when I went to South Africa and I was talking to family and learning about who we are and what are the ways in which our community identify like it was really interesting the the I guess perplexing but also varying perspectives like some friends and family I'd speak to would be like I'm a cape colored and I don't care I'm a cape colored and I'm proud to be a cape colored yeah. and I remember having a conversation with my cousin because I was trying to say the word at that time and he could pick up on my body language and was like, you're really uncomfortable, aren't you? Like, you don't want to say that word. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to say that word because everywhere else and my experience of that word is a derogatory one. So, you know, this was my early stages and also trying to understand or trying to speak and find I guess the tal or the way in which to articulate where I where my family are from which I think is something that's constantly evolving but um yeah I um I actually did this residency project where I began to delve deeper into the language and was thinking a lot about these responses and perspectives that people have said to me i mean from other cousins of mine being like i'm not colored i hate that word i hate it yeah. um but this is i guess from family of mine who had left um south africa so i imagine there's other traumas of um identity that are caught up there and i feel like there is this kind of overarching identity crisis within the colored community um without trying to speak for the whole community. But I just felt like as a diasporic outsider, if you like coming in and learning and trying to learn, it's like, okay, well, we have indigenous Khoi, Khoi San roots. We, like people are talking about how their language is closely connected to Nosa. Mm -hmm. And then we have displaced Malay slaves from, from India, South Asia, across, that's also a part of our identity. And just all of these various walks and places um, that people refer to. But I think for me, colored has become a word where I, as a diasporic being, have come to embrace it but also at the same time challenge it. Yeah. Like I didn't want to just come into the space of the Southern African geography and be like, oh, okay, we're colored, cool, cool, cool. Yeah. Because obviously that is a term that has been, well, not obvious, but for those who don't know, yeah, colored was a term that was bestowed upon um, 
a very heterogeneous group of people who have generations and generations of mixing it's not yeah. like a one-time um kind of thing and so um yeah i think for me with the term is i really want to acknowledge that this was something that the apartheid or the colonizers created but it is also a very specific and unique um cultural yeah. uh identity if you like or culture i think culture is more accurate it's kind of like i'm really excited by some of the dialogues i'm hearing coming out of um, my generation and younger generations of um, brown and black southern africans who are so-called colored but are like i politically identify as black but if you're going to talk about the cultural history of where i come from well then yeah the colonizers and the social constructs or mass we'll call it colored yeah. so it's obviously such a, a fraught kind of term, but um, it inspired a series of other works that I still create, which are T-shirts um, that read Coloured TM. Mm. And it's about trying to take back language, but also at the same time acknowledge and reject the term. Yep. So by having the TM, it's like, yes, a trademark, but also this is a brand. This is a stamp that was bestowed upon us. We weren't inherently born coloured. Like it's that's flattening our very unique and complex and um, quite spectacular, I guess, walks of life that yeah. have made us who we are as a community. Yeah. Um, there's a film I recently watched called Mutant, mm -hmm. um, by um oh i think also um yeah and um spook matumbo but they go by there yeah as one of the directors but um i recently watched that film and i really loved the way that it i think sets up what's happening in the cape region in today's context and yeah. how isaac mutant says like before apartheid i was black and yep. then now apartheid comes, you call me a coloured? Like, what yes. does that even mean? So it's something that I think um, is not necessarily um, explained within a short period, but it's like this, for me, learning about what coloured is and what coloured means for me, it's like this ongoing practice. I feel yep. like I'm always rewriting my artist bio or depending what I'm looking at or how I'm writing about myself. Yes. Um, I'm always kind of reworking and learning. And that was, yeah, a part of my residency in Indonesia was I have always um, been travelling to the continent, which is something I'm still very much interested to do, but I've never actually travelled to one of the places where it's seemingly quite um, clear, I guess, the Malay slave routes that make up yep. um, the Cape community. But I think because of, yeah, intergenerational trauma and course, yep. of course, is what has um, perhaps kept that at bay. But being someone that's in the diaspora um, and maybe not growing up with certain, um, I guess, idioms or experiences, I feel like I can enter into that space with a different kind of, yeah, lens and learn more about, yeah, who we are as um, people. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. I feel like I oscillate between, yes, I'm from a family of Cape Coloreds or I'm a coloured, but I also strongly acknowledge that this is a construction yeah. and I'm not this one word. I yeah. am like Indigenous, I am Asian, I am African and all of these places that make. Yes. Um, and um, the exhibition um, also noticeably silences the voices of Arthur Cowell, Hendrik Favoud, P.W. Botha. Uh, Robert Menzies, um, why is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is what you were asking earlier about, yeah, this was the work that um, won the Footscray Art Prize earlier this year, which um, I was very thankful um, and blessed to receive. I silenced these voices um, because in thinking about publics and 
access to publics and how we as brown and black folk in particular or black folk in particular for this work, the ways in which the, I guess the ways in which our visibility or invisibility is heightened within different parameters. Mm -hmm. And so as part of this whole installation of the Purple Shell Govern, I really wanted a work that acknowledges that these policymakers and lawmakers exist, but I don't want to herald them and put them on a pedestal. But I think we need to remember that. Um, I digress a little, but when people in NAM were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, you know, the referendum was a no, it, I'm kind of like, wake up, <laughs> like, look at the history of these policymakers like Sir Robert Menzies. There's a university here with a building literally named after this white supremacist. Like mm-hmm. Arthur Corwell was the first immigration officer, but also a massive um, advocate of the white Australia policy that wasn't just about keeping out brown or, say, non-European country migrants, but it was also about how it treated First Nations people and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country as well. So I pick these particular men because they all signify, and I mean, there's an abundance of, uh, I think, old white men that I could have put in the floor, but um, these particular men, I think, still hold a certain kind of significance in contemporary culture today. I mean... Um, Sir Joe Bielke Peterson um, was the premier in Queensland, who was the other, um, I guess, nation state Australian um, man that is silenced within the video. Mm-hmm. He is known for being extremely corrupt with his governance and relationship with mining companies, but also he was famously declared a state of emergency. Um, And this was 15 years before P.W. Bota declared a state of emergency in South Africa because of the civil unrest and violence. So when we start to, um, I guess, parallel and really look at the histories of this nation state and the colonial histories of Southern Africa, it's quite stark and close and similar in the ways in which segregation and um, white supremacy has operated. So yeah, alongside PW Porter, who was the prime minister of South Africa, there is, yes, as you mentioned, Favoud, who's often nicknamed the architect of Mm -hmm. apartheid. And I don't know if you know this story, but I remember from when I was, um, doing a residency and I met this lovely collector named Warren Siebritz who had all these archives of things and he had a newspaper archive of um, Vavoud's face. Um, it was like front page and it was after he was stabbed yeah. um, in the neck. I think, is it by Dimitri? I'm trying to remember his name, but he was also so-called um, coloured activist. But um, because he'd survived this stabbing, the way that the media had framed this article was like it was by God's divinity or divine right that, see, apartheid is okay because, you know, these kind of absurdist um, perspectives from the colony. So Vivod and alongside, yeah, BJ Stratum, these prime ministers of South Africa that implemented um, the regime, but the three men, Corwell, Menzies and Bielke, um, though not affiliated with the word apartheid, were very much advocates for a white homogenous society and were a big part of, yeah, the very dark histories of policy and law um, that we have in this country. So, yeah, they're... At Pika, we see them behind a perspex panel in the wall with their bare bones of scaffolding coming through and um, the original kind of wall in which the building that is Pika um, was once a school um, for only um, white people. 
And yeah, I really wanted to create a metaphor where these men don't have a voice. We can see them and they're embedded within the structures and foundations of this country and the social frameworks yeah. and law frameworks that we're within. But I don't want to give them voice. So yeah. hence the name, yeah, though buried, they echo. Having said that, um, what, how, so how do you feel about, obviously you were able to use them as reference without giving them voice, uh, mm -hmm. but in order for that to happen, you had to know about them. Um, now in, you know, in, in countries and in South Africa, there's been a push for, you know, some of these statues, if they're statues or, or to be, to be taken down, mm -hmm. uh, which I, I guess over time would essentially mean that they're no longer there and there's no longer that frame of reference. How do you feel about that in the South African context and in the local context? Mm. I mean, do you, do you mean about the coming down of statues? Yeah. Is that, yeah. 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 I mean, for me, I feel like it's quite exciting. Like yeah. seeing um, Stembile Mzizane's um, work um, like doing a performance literally at the time with the Rhodes statue being lifted off the UCT campus. Yeah. I think it's a sign of times of actually doing the homework that we need to do and the research that we need to do in order to reflect on our past to create a better present or a better future. Mm -hmm. And particularly in South Africa where some like there have been um, atrocious um, treatment of brown and black peoples for the longest time, you know, younger generations knowing the stories of their elders and their parents and being like, I'm not going to stand for this and taking on the essence of Winnie Mandela. Like, I think it's a really powerful thing that, you know, um, the removal or the demand for removal of a statue and replacing it with something that is more fitting within the times. Yeah. I mean, that hasn't really, I think there's been interventions here, um, but um, it does kind of show that the colonial mindset of Australia is definitely far behind Southern Africa. I think that nation state Australia can actually learn a lot from Southern Africa and our history and the history of people who have fought. I think that nations like Australia can actually learn a lot from South Africa or Southern African history and, you know, in the ways in which the fight for freedom, the grassroots mobilisation and organising, you know, even radio and the significance mm -hmm. of radio and the role it played in being able to communicate with community and bring community together. Um, there's been interventions, I think, with colonial statues here, but not an actual removal, which I think is something that should definitely be taking place. But, ooh, yeah, there is, without opening up a canon, I think there's just still such a, a long way for people to go in terms of acknowledging and recognising the genocide of this place. Mm. And I think that's why you know like the referendum that we had clearly shows like if there was any kind of doubt before there yeah. shouldn't be any more like the importance of learning about history because I think in Australia there are people who just are so unwilling to learn about their history mm. and then a migrant or a person of color comes it's like where are you from you're from somewhere, you must tell me where you're from or what is your story when actually white Australians are migrants to this place. But, <laughs> yeah, but the ways in which, you know, the centering of self happens for that kind of mindset, it's like, yeah, there needs to be an active actual kind of research and dive and dig into the histories of this place. And then once that acknowledgement occurs of like, Yes, Terranullius is BS. These are all very toxic ways and um, strategies of the colonial project. Mm -hmm. Then we can start to do some of the, you know, really powerful decolonial work that where I feel South Africa is at. Yeah. Um, 
already but yeah I don't know if I answered your question but... <laughs> yeah, totally. um, and, and I have a question that's kind of related that was asked by Lisa um, who wants to know uh, how do we bridge the gap between being immigrants who move here uh, to Australia and um, finding out about you know the local culture um, mm -hmm. South Africans have um, such a similar experience um, she felt that the referendum was hard to deal with and mm -hmm. this exhibition gave her a voice she feels um, mm -hmm. and she felt seen um, in the exhibition um, so yeah essentially her question is how do you think that you know we coming into this country should build the gap and and sort of be curious enough to know mm. to educate ourselves about about the local culture yeah for sure I mean um, it's really lovely to hear that she felt so connected and um, seen within the work mm. but yeah I think for me like because of the kind of I think silencing or negation of my own visibility or my own identity yeah. it it just very quickly um led me to you know wanting to learn about where this like aggression and this kind of um what is the word it's almost like an anxiety in some ways like the the, the intense projection of systemic violence and racism that one experiences and so when I started um, to learn about um, black histories of this country and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander histories um, across various places, I think, yeah, I think back when I was in high school and some things are unconscious, I think, where you don't realise like what you kind of, what is taking place, like I'd gravitate towards certain people who were maybe also oddballs or, you know, um, I used to go out underage with this friend of mine who is this Aboriginal man who had this huge beard and he, I had a fake idea and we could just go, like, you know, go out together. And these kinds of little moments that, you know, I didn't quite understand what pulled us together. Yeah. And I guess unconsciously it's like, acknowledging and having a shared experiences of place but I think obviously the difference with me is that I'm still an uninvited guest and I'm a settler that benefits from being on this place and so for me in my early 20s I just started to become more and more interested in learning about Australia and its racism and then the more I was looking at that you know um, it became quite I guess, fluid in the sense of um, it became quite easy to access information online. Um, Dr. Gary Foley, who features in the exhibition, has an amazing online archive, um, coreyweb.org, with um, speeches and images of various activists and things. And I think being, yeah, um, an uninvited guest and a beneficiary of lands that I'm not from, the significant thing for me, I think, in order of bridging a gap or working towards bridging that gap is doing that homework and learning about the place that I'm on and occupying and, you know, doing that homework in order to understand the various places because the stories of Borlu are different to the stories of Nam or wherever else. I mean, yes, there is a shared um you know, um, atrocious history of colonial genocide, but places have different histories and such of and various experiences. And so, yeah, when I moved to Melbourne, art school, um, I was at the time kind of dating this pseudo-activist person, but I would start going to rallies and that's where I first saw Gary Foley speak and Michael Anderson and you know, um, people like Robbie Thorpe and um, finding myself in kind of moments where, yeah, like I wouldn't call myself an activist, but um, I definitely um, have engaged in protests and, you know, um, trying to make myself aware of the various um, injustices that occur within, yeah, um, all the different places that we occupy. So I think um, 
learning about the specific place that you're on is really significant um, towards bridging that gap and particularly talking about those shared experiences. I mean, I was so privileged to meet Wajuk Noongar Elder Ani Sandra Harbin and that's um, how we also opened the exhibition was a conversation between Ani Sandra and I. Mm-hmm. And um, before bringing the show to Borloo, um, I also engaged in a bit of, um, even though the, all the works were made and it's kind of like a touring opportunity, I um, it was very important to me that I um, do some research about Borloo and Noongar country. Um, I was... Pika were very generous in sharing various articles related to A.O. Neville and the prohibition um, maps that existed in place that obviously relate to the past laws of South Africa. Um, I was also listening to Lies, Damn Lies, um, which speaks a lot about Noongar country and her experience of it as a Noongar woman that moved to Melbourne. Um, But, yeah, also just trying to learn as much as I can, um, but also that learning through Auntie. So Auntie and I hadn't met before. Pika um, introduced us and leading up to the exhibition, um, I articulated that I really wanted to um, have conversations with elders about the exhibition, um, in a sense, um, bringing forth my intentions and what I hope that it can generate and sharing about, yeah, um, the experiences that my family have had in South Africa, but also listening and listening to Ani Sandra share about her experiences. And, I mean, I think because we shared such similarities, we just got on like a house on fire and, you know, um, we laughed, we were in shock, we just over that, you know, we had a Zoom call and then, we had another like phone call. So the couple of hours or so that we spent before actually meeting was really significant so that, you know, when I had the opening, it was the first time I was meeting Aunty Sandra. And I'm very conscious that, especially within the arts or when we're putting work out into publics, the roles in which we all play as the invigilator, as the artist, as the gallery, as, you know, a contributor and, it was really important to me that the relationship that I have with Annie Sandra is genuine yeah. and that my intentions are transparent and genuine because I think sometimes what can happen in the arts is there's a lot of extractive labour from um, Indigenous um, folk, yeah, and Black folk globally. So, yeah, it was just, I mean, we were both so nervous, but then when we had that conversation, it just flowed so nicely back and forth and when I kind of had moments of just feeling angered by what I was talking about Mm. Arnie Sandra would share something and it would just Mm. you know like create this flow between us and yeah I mean what we were sharing is very very heavy and dark realities but also I think important for people within Borloo to listen um so yeah I'm it was kind of a long-winded but like to I think in terms of like bridging that gap between particularly like um migrants of color I think that the work is already um beginning because the um, perhaps some of the experiences that folk have had from their own homelands or motherlands that has brought them to a situation of refuge or um, a situation of being in a different place, mm. um, you're more perhaps inclined or interested to also learn about what's happening within the place you occupy. So, yeah, I think doing that kind of um, homework is important as well um, for understanding place and forming those relationships yeah Yeah. someone else who was new to the country maybe who is european who was told you know who was warned against oh don't go to northbridge around this time because indigenous Mm. people will attack you i'm like Mm. i've been told the same thing but um instead of like taking that on i think because of where I'm from and knowing Mm. that this must have happened back in the day. So I'm more inclined to be like, "Mm, 
interesting and I want to investigate more and it draws me closer to that culture to want to know more about it. Another thing for me would be, you know, obviously I can't speak Noongar and like, I feel like maybe I'm a little bit too old to even try to learn, but you know, you're never too old. <laughs> mm. but, but that's another thing like where, you know, where people would settle in, in our countries without the need to even speak our languages. Um, mm. Absolutely no need for them to learn, to learn the languages. and. And coming here, like I'm conscious of of these things, you know, maybe I can't learn the language, maybe there's other things that I can learn, um, mm. uh, you know, just to, you know, not even just to show respect because that's just how it should be, right? That's how it is. Yeah. If I was to move to Germany, that's what I would have to do if, it, if I was. Mm. So for me, um, that's that's definitely what it was. Um, I won't keep you for much longer. I am going to ask you one last question. <laughs> um, what do you, you've kind of like touched on this a little bit, but what do you hope um, that this particular exhibition achieves? And, and just your work, like everything that you work on, what is the, what do you, what are you trying to achieve with it? Hmm. Um, I think, you know, there's some more kind of um, challenging goals that I have. But one of them that I guess simply put is my experience of growing up in this nation state, I felt quite alone at times or just quite invisible. And I think one of the goals for this is about visibility and putting the experiences of black um, folk in visibility for people to really think about deeply and think critically. I mean, even how you were thinking before when someone says a racist remark like that about Noongar people or Northbridge or whatnot, it's like, how can we actually be critical thinkers so that when we hear things like this, it's like, this is coming from somewhere else because mm. for the longest time, the ways in which our bodies and our voices have been represented haven't been within our own agency or within our own way of showing the self. So I think a big goal of my work is to give voice to, um, I think, the this kind of experience um, because I don't think it's always given voice in this particular way or in a way where what I really would love and hope for my work to do is for someone to also walk away and think differently about um, something like perhaps they learn something new or perhaps they have more insight into a community that they didn't have before because I feel like in this age as well where a lot of people like go online or don't always check the kind of sources that we're looking at or just don't always listen I think to voices who are probably yeah at the center of what a lot of the social problems that exist within um, the current I guess state that we're in now but yeah my work is always about trying to evoke deep thinking um, but at that same time, I really wanted to also not center a white gaze because mm. I think my previous works when I was a bit younger, I would do that a lot. And I think that's also reflective of the spaces or the people who would visit those spaces where it's like, if this is the majority, let's say, um, but now for me and what I'd like my practice to do, I'm really interested in plurality and multiplicity. And like I said before, like the different entry points in to my work. So yeah, I feel like if people um, can listen or be in the space and experience um, the exhibition and connect with it um, on a deep level, I feel like that is so, um, touching and kind of validating for me and feels like the work is successful if it does that um i feel like if someone walks away being like i have no idea what that was about then that's a big failure for me but yeah the i bring in these narratives of place and 
the stories of my family. I mean, I've been thinking a lot today um, about that particular work lunch on Mignon Street, Cape Town, as it's my late aunt's birthday, or it would have been today. And, you know, even being in the gallery and installing that work when Pika were putting all the headphones and things in, I started to hear my voice and her voice and I got quite emotional. I just had to leave the room and yeah, this work for me is very personal and I think it's tied into my own experiences of publics and navigating space. And so, yeah, the work um, is really successful for me if people feel seen and affirmed in the experience of it. And for those who um, may not have that experience, if they can walk away learning more about the harsh realities um, that Black folk have faced historically. Um, and it, yeah, people of colour coming into various um, new places, then yeah, um, I think that the work has been quite successful, I hope. But see, the thing, yeah, the thing with, I feel like creative arts is I always articulate, I hope and I aim, because I can never say as the artist what the work will do for someone. And so it's always really beautiful and interesting to hear questions and feedback from people about their experience of the work. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for that. Um, that was beautiful. The exhibition itself is like outstanding. Um, and it runs until the 31st of December. So you have lots of time to catch it. Uh, but thank you, Roberta, for making time to speak to us. And I'm sure we'll catch up with you again. And we will keep an eye on everything that you do because you are awesome and everything you do is awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for having me, Shoshi. Much appreciated. Let's go.